You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is Episode 84, covering the week of August 7th through August 11, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you that uh, we do exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like this podcast, you like the website, you like our conferences, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the Abbeville Institute. You can find all the ways to do that at abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you click on support, and it'll have memberships for individuals, also uh, other planned giving options and memberships for businesses. And we do have monthly and yearly or annual options. You can donate as little as $3 a month or $25 a year if you're a student, or $5 a month or $50 a year if you are not a student. And again, all of that is available at abbevilleinstitute.org. Also, if you go to abbevilleinstitute.org, you can give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell, and that'll put you on our email list and you will get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly week in review email either on Saturday or Sunday, and that includes a link to this podcast. Also, we want to remind you that if you do like this podcast, you can share it around on social media. We would appreciate it if you do that. And you can find us on social media on Facebook. You can find us at Abbeville INST on Facebook. So you can like us there. You can follow us on Twitter, Abbeville INST. And you can subscribe to our YouTube page where we do put our videos of our conferences and our podcast. Also, all the audio files from our most recent Summer School at Seabrook Island, South Carolina, our 15th annual summer school, are now available on the website. If you go to the website at the top of the page, it'll have audio. You click on that, and it has not only a a, uh, section for the podcast, but also a section for audio files. And you can search by summer school or conference, and you can find the uh, audio files for our most recent conference at Seabrook Island. So all of that stuff is there. Please use those things. Again, all these things are free. All the things we put on the website are free. So if you do like what we do, uh, a tax deductible contribution would help us keep all of those things free for everyone to use. And our website has become a real uh, depository of uh, Southern thought on the web. So uh, it's, uh, it's a, definitely a, a place to go to if you're looking for any information on Southern culture, politics, literature, those type of things. So uh, please uh, utilize those, those uh, services that we have for free. And, uh, again, share them around on social media. Okay. So we had a really good week at the Institute. Uh, We did have uh, one section or at least one uh, piece this week was from our summer school. And then we had a few other pieces that deal with some of the uh, pressing issues of the day. Um, But all of this, I think, is, is within the context of the South as a minority section. Um, And... That's something that when I get to the piece that I wrote on Thursday about John C. Calhoun, it was actually brought up by William Lowndes Yancey. And so we had a, a book review on a book about William Lowndes Yancey on Tuesday. Uh, but that's something that that is often lost in all of the things, the negative things that are said about Calhoun or uh, the South, and not understanding why Calhoun was insistent on the positions that he took by the 1830s and 40s, because Calhoun could see the writing on the wall, 
um, in terms of what was going to happen to the South, what was going to happen to uh, the South as a sectional minority. And he was certainly interested, and he knew well, that one of the things you had to do with a written constitution, or one of the benefits of a written constitution, was theoretic protection of minorities. And so here we are in a situation where this particular issue is brought up. You know, we have political minorities, uh, uh religious minorities, racial minorities, cultural minorities. And so this is why Calhoun is still studied all over the world. He studied all over the world because people look at his concurrent majority as a means to understand how can a political minority, for whatever reason, be protected in a majoritarian system. And so that's where uh, Calhoun is definitely worthy of study in this particular regard. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. But the first thing we did on Monday, we actually ran a couple of poems by uh, Catherine Savage Brossman. Um, and both of these poems um, were presented at the Abbeville Institute Summer School. And uh, it was under the title, the two poems are under the title of Rich Hours because they describe uh, Louisiana and the, the environment around Louisiana. Uh, one was published in 2012. Uh, by Mercer University Press. The other one is uh, also published by Merc Mercer University Press, but in 2017, it's it's uh, from a forthcoming collection of poetry. And so uh, Dr. Brossman was the uh, poetry editor for Chronicles Magazine for years, and I think she still is. And uh, she did teach uh, literature at Tulane University in Louisiana. So she's not from Louisiana originally, from Colorado, but... Um, has very much admired the South and, and, and uh, the Southern environment. And I think that's something that's lost oftentimes in, in uh, what we try to do at the Institute. And, and part of that is respect for, when we talk about agrarianism, it's respect for nature and the environment and being good stewards of those things, understanding the beauty of, of the land and nature, not in the way that the oftentimes the modern environmentalists look at it as kind of a uh, almost a uh, religious... Uh, communistic ritual, but um, uh, but in the way that the Southerners often look look at it is it's this these things were were given by God and they need to be protected and admired for what they are. As uh, Southerners are part of a a bigger picture, and that bigger picture is is Christian civilization and being good Christian stewards of the land and the environment and enjoying those things and enjoying uh, this divine beauty that's around us. And so Southerners from the beginning, if you look at Southern literature and how they started describing uh, the New World, uh, oftentimes, if, and I've said this on the podcast before, but if you look at how Northerners viewed the world when they first arrived uh, in North America, it was dark and foreboding. They, they had this view of it as, as very grim, but Southerners looked at it as an opportunity. Now, some would say, well, this is only because uh, they were trying to sell uh, seats on ships to come over to the New World. But when the economy actually uh, began to improve, now, of course, Jamestown went through a very tough period of time, but when the economy began to improve, uh, they looked at this as, as drastically different. And uh, even uh, when, I, when I, on my own podcast, I, I talked about a, a really interesting little book uh, about the... Uh, the expedition to uh, supply Jamestown that was um, that almost failed, and the 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 uh, one of these ships was shipwrecked on Bermuda, and how they looked at 
the world there. I mean, this was a very plentiful place. They, a lot of them wanted to stay because they saw this area as, as a place that could be used. It was rich. It was uh, full of wild wildlife and, uh, and natural beauty and not just that, uh, things that you could sustain life with. And so uh, I, I think Southerners had a much more optimistic view of not only the environment that was around them, but also what they could do with it than Northerners. Uh, it wasn't just a place to be tolerated. It was a place to be used and enjoyed uh, for whatever for whatever way you wanted, whether it was economics or just the natural beauty of it all. So I think that oftentimes we miss that in our understanding of northern and southern literature. And there is a drastic difference in that particular way in that view of nature and society. Uh, and so when you talk about modern environmentalism, I mean, all of this was in many ways born in the South and their understanding of, of, of man's relationship with the environment. Now, it's taken on an entirely different tone, and I know people would say, what about, what about Walden there? What about uh, Thoreau and, and Walden? Uh, because so many uh, 1960s environmentalists uh, took on that as their, you know, Walden Pond as their, as their model. But when you look at, say, the agrarians, the southern agrarians, the I'll take my stand group, I mean, these people are talking about the environment. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's nothing else. And so I think that understanding literature through as, as a medium for that uh, in the South is very important to do. And that's why we like having, when we do our conferences, when we do our summer school, we like having that particular perspective as well when it comes to literature to have that element to it. Because that's an important component of Southern culture. You can't really have a vibrant culture without a vibrant literature. And Southerners have good stories to tell. And so this is why uh, oftentimes uh, Southern literature is superior to anything else that any other section has produced. It's also why Southern music is better, because Southerners have a story to tell. And so we forget that at our own peril. But as Southerners, uh, who are you know, consciously have a Southern identity, uh, that identity often comes from a culture. You have to have that as, as, the, as the root for that. And we've talked about that a lot on the podcast. So literature feeds that. And also our, under, our relationship with the environment and how we use those things. It feeds those, those, uh, that part of that identity. So it's important to, to understand that. And, and um, I think uh, Dr. Brosman does a good job with that. So uh, on Tuesday, we ran a book review. of The book was William Lowndes Yancey and the Coming of the Civil War by Eric Walther. Uh, this book was actually published about a decade ago, and the review was by Jonathan White, who um, is a, a colonel uh, in the U.S. Army, but also um, has a Ph.D. In, uh, in history from the University of Alabama. And so uh, he, is, um, he is someone who is dedicated to our mission to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, and so he wrote this little review of Yancey. He actually wrote a very—his dissertation was on uh, voting patterns in Alabama in 1860, and so he was—he's uh, very much an expert on uh, the political climate of Alabama on the eve of the war. And so he was uh, well-equipped to write this review. And one of the things he points out in this review is that the book doesn't necessarily contain enough of Yancey's own words. And I think that's something, if you're, if you're a young academic listening to this, make sure when you, if you want to do something like this, write a biography, we're going and look at a political figure, make sure you include as much of their own words as possible. Uh, you don't want to sound like you don't want to blur the lines between your thoughts and their thoughts, but it's important to show these people for what they thought and what they were uh, and not try to paraphrase everything. And there's, there's a school of thought that says, well, you don't want to have large block quotes because people don't read them. 
Um, and there is something to that. I know Forrest McDonald was uh, told a, a colleague of mine one time when he had a, a paper that he had too many block quotes and nobody's going to read it. They'll just skim over it. Get rid of all that stuff and paraphrase everything. And if you go back and look at McDonald's works, there's not a whole lot of direct quotations in there. You know, big block quotes. Uh, he does a lot of shorter quotations and some paraphrasing, which does, I think in some ways, if you're trying to write a narrative that is readable, uh, that's something that you want to do. However, sometimes large passages do help tell the story, and it, particularly when you're trying to get a point across to put it in their own words to help them understand what they were saying and how they were saying it. And so that was uh, Dr. White's point, or Colonel White's point, is that there wasn't enough of Yancey's own words. Now, there's one really interesting uh, quote that he gave uh, from Yancey from a September 25, 1860 speech. Uh, so this is on the eve of the 1860 presidential election. Lincoln had not yet been elected, but this is what Yancey said about the situation. Now remember, Yancey was called the Patrick Henry of the Confederacy, the man who in some ways single-handedly you know, brought secession uh, to Alabama. And, but this is what he said, uh, and he's speaking to her of the northern states. Uh, and he was trying to convince people not to elect a Republican president. And this is what he said, quote, My friends, there was one issue before you, and to all sensible men, but one issue, and but two sides of that issue. The slavery question is but one of the symbols of that issue. The commercial question is but one of the symbols of that issue. The union question is but one of the symbols. The only issue before this country in this canvas is the integrity and the safety of the Constitution. He is a true union man who intends to stand by that Constitution with all its checks and balances. He is a disunion man who means to destroy one single letter of that sacred instrument. Majorities need no protection save their own power. But how is it with the South? How is it with the minority of the country, the minority states of the government? Minorities, gentlemen, are the true friends of the, our Constitution because that Constitution is their shield and their protection against the unchecked and unlicensed will of the majority. Hence, it is that my section of the South stands by that Constitution. You hear much said that there about the Constitution, about its strict construction, about the rigid enforcement of its checks and its balances in favor of the minorities, because to them it is a thing of life and death. So here he's bringing up a point, and this is Calhoun's point, also in the concurrent majority. Uh, there is, the, a written Constitution is there to protect minorities from abuse by the majority. This is why you have, uh, essentially, the codified powers of the document are there to ensure that political minorities are not abused. Majorities, as, as Yancey says, they need no protection. The only protection is that they have the power. But minorities can be abused in this situation because we have, essentially, a tyranny with the majority at that point. I mean, so Yancey's point was, well, here we are in the South. We are now a, a political minority. And we need protection from the document. And if we cannot get that protection, then what other option do we have but leaving the union? And I think this is why you're seeing secession discussed in California. Because in some ways, even though uh, they believe themselves to be the political majority, they're really not. I think uh, that uh, for the most part, the, uh, the quote-unquote red states... 
uh, which uh, is, is, a, is a stupid designation, but it's one that people recognize. But the so-called red states are the majority. The Republicans control more governorships. So the Democrats, if you just look at a popular majority, of course, they, they have it. The left has it in that way. But California is now being outvoted all the time. And so uh, the question is, how can those minorities, how can that political minority protect itself? And I think they're saying, well, we have to leave. We have to get out of the union in order to protect ourselves. And this is all Yancey is saying. That's all Calhoun was saying. Because he said, look, the, the right of the minority, if it cannot protect itself, it has to leave, and that will be better for the union overall. It'll be better for the minority. It'll also be better for the majority because they don't have to worry about then the minority. The minority has to have a negative. So I'll get into that in a minute when I talk about Calhoun. But Yancey is often misunderstood because he's only viewed as a pro-slavery fire eater. But there was a lot of nuances and, and, um, and interesting parts to Yancey's rhetoric that are often undocumented. And so having a nice biography of Yancey is important. Perhaps one needs to be written again. This one was uh, 2006. Uh, but maybe uh, you know a, a, an updated version, a decade. Usually, about every 20, 30 years, people will write. If it's if it's not Thomas Jefferson or James Madison or George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, I mean, they can get a biography every year. Uh, but some of these other political figures could have one uh, every decade or every two decades. And so perhaps it's time for someone to give a look uh, to all the fire eaters, not just William Yancey, but also Robert Barnwell Red and and some of the others that were um, important to the coming of the war in the South and the things that we're saying. And, of course, these people often had a lot of attention paid to them by the uh, blundering generation school because they thought these people you know, blundered into the war that could have been avoided. But it's good to have a biography of Yancey, and um, I think that uh, Colonel White was definitely equipped to, uh, to do this. On uh, Wednesday, we ran a piece entitled Archie Who, and this is kind of a reprieve from the political stuff, but now, uh, this piece is interesting because now Archie Manning has come out against the Mississippi flag. And, of course, Archie Manning made his name uh, playing football for the University of Mississippi and then later professional football in New Orleans. But he's definitely from a southern family. His, uh, he's directly descended from a Confederate soldier. Uh, so Archie Manning coming out and saying, well, I think we need to change the flag. Also, uh, one of the, um, uh, let's see, was it the, uh, the granddaughter of... Uh, uh, John Stennis has now saying we need to have a new state flag so so that uh, even though 65% of the people uh, think the flag is fine, we need to have a new flag because of 35% of the people. Now, this is an interesting position because we're talking about minorities and the political minorities and how those minorities should be protected. Uh, so in this particular way, uh, Calhoun's concurrent majority could come into play here. I mean, we have something that's for the good of all, uh, we or we have a majoritarian system. I mean, what kind of of uh, uh, what kind of situation are we going to have? But overall, and the point of this particular piece was that um, the uh, Archie Manning coming out in favor of taking down the flag is just another uh, another uh, somebody another uh, popular figure or you know. Uh, you know, celebrities saying we need to do something about a Confederate symbol. They're piling on, and Archie Manning not understanding you know his own family history and and um, and where he comes from, and and of course all the people that um, supported Archie Manning at the University of Mississippi, uh, as uh, as uh, Paul Yarborough said, he wrote the piece. I can't help but feel sorry for Archie Manning. He seemed to have lived his life in a dignified way 
with always a special remembrance of the roots he had had and the gentle down-home sleepy Delta town he was reared in. But I assume he has traded in his roots for new downtown friends. So long, Archie. We knew you when you were who, right? So uh, before Archie Manning became anything, he, he's, he's turning his back on the people of Mississippi. And uh, that's unfortunate uh, because this is happening all over the South. And and uh, you know, it's going to continue to happen if people don't understand their own history and, and why they should be proud of uh, their uh, ancestors. Going, uh, Southerners going back to the 17th century. Um, not just this four-year period of the war, but uh, Southerners going back before that point. And this is what we try to do at the Institute. We try to explain the entirety of Southern history, not just the four-year period of the war, what everyone thinks that that's Southern history right there, four years. No, uh, it's it's uh, history dating back to 1607. In fact, if you want to take it back further than that, you could say 1565, the first permanent European settlement in North America was St. Augustine in Spanish Florida. And so uh, there was a, a definite uh, you know, influence there, uh, Spanish influence in Florida. Uh, and so that was part of it as well. So it's a, it's a 400-year history of, of uh, Southern history, and, and uh, Spanish Florida is certainly part of that. Uh, now, the Thursday piece was written by yours truly. It's um, entitled Calhoun the Marxist uh, with a question mark, and that's because there was a piece that was published in the Federalist uh, by uh, John Daniel Davidson, where um, he said that uh, Calhoun, the Confederacy, wrote the blueprints for the modern bureaucratic centralized state. And so my point was the neoconservatives can't figure out why they don't like the South. They just don't like it. Uh, you know, if it's Victor Davis Hanson. He's bashing uh, sanctuary cities and California secession because that's uh, bringing up, you know, the old South. Uh, for for uh, Davison, he's saying, well, no, it's, it's they're creating the modern progressive states. Centralization is a Confederate legacy. So which one is it? Is it decentralization or centralization? They can't figure out why not to like the South. They just don't like it. So I've already talked about Hansen before on this particular podcast, but uh, Davidson, I think, was the one that um, is more problematic. I mean, you you can look at Hansen and say, well, this guy's just a, a Straussian Lincolnite. He he loves strong central authority. But Davidson, by coming out and saying, no, no, the Confederacy is all for centralization. That's I mean, it's the Confederacy that won. And, he, um, and so I I don't think he ever read Calhoun. I don't think he ever read Calhoun one time. He called, uh, you know, Calhoun, he, he's using Jaffa, Harry Jaffa, who's a, just a ridiculous uh, junk historian, for his, uh, to defend his positions. And Jaffa has already been uh, destroyed by, by Mel Bradford. But uh, he's using Jaffa's quotes to show that Calhoun was, uh, you know, somehow the precursor to Marx. Um, and he cites a piece that was in the USA Today by a Lincolnite scholar, uh, claiming that the Confederacy, quote, centralized political authority in ways that made a hash of states' rights, nationalized industries in ways historians have compared to state socialism, and imposed the first compulsory national draft in American history. Now, I say in this piece, you know, some of this is true, but there's an important part of the story that this historian, and I'm not going to use his name, leaves out. First of all, states' rights is often blamed for the defeat of the Confederacy. Uh, and so how can you say that centralization worked? It didn't in the South. I mean, whereas Lincoln's regime was able to centralize authority there and trample all over the Constitution, the Confederacy was violating the Constitution as well, but the state stood up to it oftentimes. As I point out, state courts routinely defined, defied Confederate law, 
even going so far as to issue writs of habeas corpus after it was suspended by the central government. Now, is that centralization? No. In fact, the Confederacy, the Confederate Congress never even put the federal, their federal court system into place. The state courts handled everything, so the states openly defied the central government all the time. So this is, this is you know, a half-truth in what he's saying. It's also clear, as I say, that Davidson has never read Calhoun. Uh, Calhoun was called the Marks of the Master Class by Richard Hofstetter in 1948, but, but it's not meant as a critique. Hofstetter thought Calhoun was a serious scholar, a thoughtful person. He calls him actually the last American statesman philosopher. Uh, but Jaffa distorted that label. And so did Davidson. Now, one other thing they said uh, that Davidson said is that uh, you know Calhoun's positions are based on quote the junk pseudoscience of racial inequality and Darwinism, uh, but he never even mentioned. First of all, Calhoun was writing before Darwin was even was even publishing anything. So how can it be uh, Darwinism when Darwin hadn't even written anything yet? Uh, but he never even mentions race in the disquisition at all. The disquisition on government, which is what you know, this this piece is all about, he mentions the concurrent majorities. Um, Calhoun did not believe that all men were equal, but neither did any conservative from time immemorial to the 1970s. Uh, if, if, if this is the case, if that's junk pseudoscience, then Russell Kirk and other giants of American post-World War II conservative thought should be held in contempt. They liked Calhoun. Uh, now, Davison also claims that Calhoun's concurrent majority was intended to, quote, circumvent the forms and restrictions of the Constitution so the government can do things they need to be, that they think need to be done. But this is simply not true. Uh, what Calhoun was worried about is numerical minority, majorities from crushing minorities. Uh, and... This was important. This is why the concurrent, just why Cowan came up with this. He looked at the Constitution and said, well, yeah, a written Constitution is good because theoretically with the checks and balances, it can protect minorities from being harmed by the tyranny of the majority. But the problem is there's no mechanism in the Constitution. There's no mechanism in the Tenth Amendment. There's no teeth. There's no teeth in it that would allow anyone to do this. So he came up with a concurrent majority to do that. And he said, look, what we need to do is ensure that there's a negative, some way. You can call it nullification, you can call it, you know, stated, we can call it whatever you want. You can have secession, whatever you want, but there has to be a negative because every piece of legislation should benefit and burden the entire union equally. If it doesn't do that, then you don't have good legislation. And that was Calhoun's point entirely, and this is something that Davidson misses. And so this is problematic for Davidson. He does, like I said, I don't think he ever even read the disquisition. Calhoun certainly was against um, mob rule, but so was every other conservative until the 1970s. I say, as uh, Calhoun pointed out in the Disquisition, the end result of the majoritarian system will be the constant scrambling for the spoils of power by two factions and the destruction of the written constitution. Each side would retreat to the shield of that constitution, and, and actually Yancey used that term when it was out of power, but would ignore it while wielding the reins. Calhoun has been proven entirely correct. This is what we have. This is why people in America are so angry, because we have a top-down structure with majoritarian systems, and there's no negative for the minority. So 
when these attacks come out against Calhoun, oftentimes people don't even know what Calhoun said. They just look at you know Samuel Flag Demas, the the the, the, the cast iron man. The, uh, the defender of slavery with his hair all wild and Calhoun dying from tuberculosis. That's what they look at. They don't see Calhoun as a serious scholar, which at least Richard Hofstetter was willing to do. So was John F. Kennedy. They looked at him as a serious scholar, a serious statesman, philosopher. But these people, he's just a caricature of something else. And that's a real problem with the quote-unquote right, if the, these people really aren't even on the right, really, I don't think. So Calhoun is under attack. I actually saw, you know, all kinds of people are not just not just the Confederate statues, but Calhoun's under attack, Jefferson's under attack, Washington's under attack. Twentieth uh, century Southern figures are under attack. I mean, that's easy. This, it's again, it's a low hanging fruit. But where do you stop? And of course, as a, a, a minister in New Orleans pointed out, after the Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee statue came down, uh, you know, of course, that was going to solve all the problems in New Orleans, but. Obviously, it didn't. The murder rate still continues to climb. They just had all this flooding. But I sure am glad they spent all that time and money getting rid of a couple statues. This is how silly this whole thing is. But this is the the political climate in which we live. Now, the last piece of the week was actually an interesting piece. It was written by Norman Black. And the title is Lincoln, Crony, Capitalism, and Populism. And what Norman is trying to do is connect the dots between Lincoln and these other things. Lincoln uh, being really involved in creating a crony capitalist system, a state capitalism system uh, that um, benefits the few while the many. What uh, the great sociologist William uh, Graham Sumner said was the forgotten man. While they get squeezed, you've got the rich benefiting from the government, you've got the, low, you've got the poor benefiting from the government, and you've got everybody in the middle that's getting squeezed by it. And so... He's looking at populism here, and he's trying to connect this you know, with agrarianism, which, which it really was. And I think one of the things that you can say about populism, again, an unrepresented part of Southern history. Uh, 20th century Southern history needs to be studied in more detail. Uh, but one of the things about populism, and you look at it, and the origins of that, it very much comes out of the Southern agrarian tradition. And I think you know, Western populists, they, they realized after the war was over, they cut a bad deal. Uh, these Midwestern and Western populists who were interested in agrarianism understood that the, Nor- the New England, the Deep North, the Northern industrialists were not their allies. Their real allies were actually in the South. And this is something Calhoun pointed out years before the war. He said, look, if we don't start trying to court these people in the Midwest, we're going to lose. But they're our natural allies. They're farmers like us. Farmers need to stick together against the New England uh, you know, merchant class. Uh, George Mason pointed this out in the Philadelphia Convention, and this is why he wanted to have an amendment at one point in the in the Virginia Ratifying Convention that would have prevented uh, what they called navigation laws, you know, so uh, that the South couldn't have been harmed by New England. Uh, and this is an important part of this, and so I think Norman did a pretty good job here connecting all the dots between uh, populism and, of course, agrarianism and where this comes from, and, of course, Lincoln's crony capitalist system, the Hamiltonian system, that is the real, that's Hamilton won. I mean, to say the South was somehow, you know, the the precursor to the modern bureaucratic state is just silly. That would be Hamilton. Uh, That would be Hamilton's economic system. And, of course, people are going to say, well, Hamilton's economic system is great. It's brought the United States tremendous wealth and prosperity. Uh, But at the expense of what? And, and uh, we're living in that. The critique of this, it's very important. We're living in that period of time. Uh, and so people are critiquing it. 
based on a Jeffersonian understanding of American political economy. They just don't realize that oftentimes. So I really like this piece. Uh, but that, that said, I mean, when you're looking at all of these things, and you're looking at the warfare state, which is the modern state, you're looking at uh, the agrarian critique, you're looking at Southern culture and identity, you're looking at political minorities and how to protect them, the South had the answer for a lot of these things. But because the South is so disparaged and so looked down on, nobody, just knee-jerk reaction. Well, it's Calhoun, he's bad. It's the Confederacy, it's bad. It's a, a Southern literary figure, they're bad. It's a... It's a Southern political figure in the 20th century. They're bad. We can't take anything out of these people. There's nothing good about them. And so this is a real problem in American history and also contemporary American society. Um, and I, I think if we can start having a real conversation, but it's going to take a much larger effort to educate. And again, this is why we're here. And if you do like what we're doing, consider a tax-deductible contribution to the Institute. Until next time. Good day.